Ultrasound Gel Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Ultrasound Gel Bonus Cuts. This is a new podcast branch and I am super excited about it. Here at Ultrasound Gel, we're constantly brainstorming new ideas for the podcast and for the blog because we're trying to make this better and better for you. And this is one of those things that we dreamt up and now is actually a reality. And I have to introduce the man behind this, Dr. Zach Rissler, who has been helping out with the podcast now for several years. And he had this idea and we're going to make it happen. So Zach, why don't you tell us what's going on and introduce our first guest. Thanks, Mike. So this is, as the name suggests, a bonus section. The idea was really to give some more insight from authors on their own research. My hope is that we will learn from each other, we'll learn about the research process, we'll learn about pitfalls and areas where the researchers really kind of want us to know the struggles that go behind their research. I'd like to see what we're doing and hear more from the research community. We will also have other bonus topics in the future, interviews with POCUS researchers, luminaries, so stay tuned for some really fun extra material. Our first guest is Felipe Terrain. Felipe is a clinician scientist with research focus in cardiac arrest. He trained in emergency medicine, completed a fellowship in emergency ultrasound at Mount Sinai Hospital. His research centers around the investigation of novel resuscitation strategies in both lab and clinical environments. Much of his current work uses TEE to study the physiologic effects of chest compressions in hemodynamic and cerebral perfusion. We'll be discussing an article that we covered at the end of 2021 called The Quantitative Characterization of Left Ventricular Function During Pulseless Electrical Activity Using Echocardiography During Out-of-Hospital Cardiac Arrest. This paper is a sub-analysis of the reason trial data. So let's jump in. Felipe, can you give us a quick rundown of what you did? Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for inviting me, for having me. This is a great initiative, I think, to do this, to kind of dive through some of this data and, and hopefully pick up on the new ones that is always relevant to interpret. Kind of the gist of it, what we did was, as Zach just described, was a retrospective analysis or a secondary analysis of the recent study. As a side note, very often I hear uh, the recent study referred to as a recent trial. By no means, the intent is to diminish or not recognize the, the incredible and, and just ginormous amount of work, but well perspective was not a trial. There was no intervention. It was observational. So it's important just because as we move forward, it's important to keep in mind that there's been very little work yet at the trial level, meaning actually applying ultrasound as an intervention. Felipe, I mean, the first thing that you mentioned is reading the articles. I mean, the authors put so much work into putting each word into a manuscript. And then it's really sad if someone just reads the abstract or just even hears about the article and decides like that's good enough for them. And even though our resource is precisely summarizing these studies, we always advocate for people reading them themselves because I should say we never can really understand how this data affects your work specifically. And then also what you're saying about being very precise about the language that we use when we're discussing research so it's very clear what's been done, what hasn't been done yet. And again, by no means that the aim there is to sort of diminish the relevance and importance of the work that has been done. But specifically, when we talk about cardiac ultrasound and cardiac arrest, one of the reasons why we are limited in our current sort of understanding of the real value of this modality in, in, in resuscitation is precisely because of the design of the studies that we've done in the past. And we can only reach so far when we're using a, an observational method in terms of looking at associations. Of, obviously, we can't establish causality. So going back to our study, I want to start 
start by describing exactly kind of what, what we had in mind, which is the hypothesis. So we were just talking kind of offline before we started here that often the hypothesis that drives the studies gets missed. Unfortunately, many journals, there's no specific dedicated section to outline the hypothesis clearly, which is not the case when you write a, a grant proposal. There's a very specific area where you need to outline your hypothesis and in some cases, your secondary hypothesis. So in this case, the hypothesis was that PEA, pulse electrical activity, actually represents a spectrum of disease that begins with organized activity followed by disorganized activity and that ends with asystole as the final stage of what we think is a progression that, if such, could be measured based on the degree of ventricular dysfunction or function, depends on kind of how you see it, with ultrasound. Historically, we've looked at this situation with kind of a dichotomy lens. It's either presence of cardiac activity or absence of cardiac activity. And we know from several studies that that has been correlated with um, outcomes with ROSC and then with survival. And so we know that, but the hypothesis is that rather than two distinctive groups, it's probably a spectrum, a continuum that in one end, say on the left side of the spectrum, we have essentially cardiogenic shock. As that becomes worse and worse, eventually you end up in what we recognize as pseudo-PEA, where there's organized myocardial contractions, but that yet are not sufficient to generate systemic perfusion. And then that deteriorates into what is then disorganized myocardial contractions. And then eventually there's just no contractions and there's a systole. With that hypothesis in mind, what we did was using the database from the recent study, we wanted to go through those images, specifically patients with PEA, looked at their myocardial function or myocardial dysfunction. We wanted to quantify somehow how much myocardial activity was essentially left, if you will, in those hearts. And so that approach, as far as we know, had not been done in the past. We had to actually go through a number of options, looked at, you know, discs and sort of modify Simpsons equivalent and different parameters that could give us that answer and ended up settling with a unidimensional echocardiographic parameter. And that's left ventricular fractional shortening, where you put M mode through the left ventricle free wall and through the septum and then measure the difference essentially between that diameter. The shortening of that diameter between will be the equivalent of systole and diastole during the CPR process. And so again, with the many caveats that are probably beyond the, the scope of this discussion regarding this parameter, again, lots of limitation, we then you obtain a number that was measured with uh, after using, again, M mode. You might ask, well, how did we do that? We just went through the images and we used tool for post hoc analysis of, of images called M-modify to be able to generate those M-modes and get those left ventricle fractional shortening values. And so with that, we did establish an outcome of ROSC and confirmed that there was a correlation between the left ventricle fractional shortening and ROSC. We also looked at the secondary outcome of survival to hospital admission, but we knew that we were under power with the number of cases that we had for that. In fact, consistent with that, we did not find an association with hospital admission. There was a trend, but it was not statistically significant. So we did some survival, sort of Cox proportional hazard models analysis to look at how the length of the resuscitation would impact in this correlation and found that there was indeed a correlation. And I encourage everybody to see those, those curves. So the predicted probability of ROSC was 75% with the group that had left ventricle fractional shortening between 23 and 96%. That's like the fourth quartile compared to 47% for the category that we that we established as the first quartile, which was under 4.7%. So again, 
for for the numbers to make sense is is much easier with looking at the graphs. But anything sufficient to say for this discussion, we did confirm this first step of the hypothesis. Man, that's great! And shout out to friend of the show Ben Smith, who I believe created the M Modify tool. This is not the first project I've seen that being used, so it's really cool that it can be used for research purposes. I would like to say congratulations on the publication. This is kind of amazing work, and I think it really goes along with what I see in clinical practice. When I put the ultrasound probe on a patient who is in cardiac arrest, I've always thought to myself, you know, I see a little bit of activity. What's the chance that this person's going to survive? Or I come in and I see nothing right off the bat. And so I think you're really diving into what we're seeing in in clinical practice. And I think this is the kind of first step to get us there. And I think as Cray said in the original podcast, you know, resuscitation research is so difficult because people are coming in and it's such a heterogeneous group of people. So now, do you think that we did justice to your study when we talked about it in the original podcast? Or what did we get wrong? What did we do right? I think to answer the question specifically, I think you did a great job. The point that I thought specifically was perhaps maybe not missed, but potentially misinterpreted from this data is that this study was never really intended to propose in any way the use of this approach, specifically the use of M-mode measurements for you know this specific parameter in this case, or as a clinical application. It was more of a hypothesis proving or hypothesis generating a study where we wanted to, with this data, inform the design of future studies of, of patients with PEA, as opposed to, again, do a clinical integration at this point. And so that's relevant because I, after I listened to the podcast, I, I thought, oh gosh, maybe there'll be a few fellows or residents that are going to go out and try to activate M-mode in the middle of the arrest. And you know, on top of the, all the concerns we already have about the potential of prolonging pauses of CPR interruptions when using transthoracic ultrasound in general, the idea that somebody would be trying to find the M-mode and then put the calipers and measure it, it just, it, it kind of, it, it worried me. So, wanted to specifically state that clearly, that that was not the intention. With that said, I think the other aspect that perhaps relevant to share or to state clearly as well is what else did we learn from, from the study? And I think if you go through the, again, the data, you should always want to look at table one. And in table one, in in this study, what we have is the comparison between the two cohorts of the patients that we were able to select for inclusion in our measurement, which was a small fraction of the total patients that we had available with PA in this cohort of the original study of the, of the reason, and the patients that were excluded. And you might say, well, why were they excluded? And the answer is they were excluded because we couldn't do this measurement in, in many of those patients. And that kind of makes sense, right? Because this is sort of a, you know, you could say an afterthought, right? This data was collected and it was not collected with the knowledge or with the intention to then make quantitative measurements. And so it's not surprising that it was only a fraction of patients where we were able to do this measurement. But if you go to that uh, table one and you look at the, the differences, as you would expect, there are no differences on the demographics, age and gender between the two groups. It's not There's no statistical significance. However, there was a difference in the outcomes and it's a significant difference in the outcomes. So there was a significantly higher percentage of ROSC in the, in the cohort of patients that had left ventricular fractional shortening available and same with the survival to admission. So 55% ROSC in that group versus 30% of ROSC in the ones that were excluded. As to why that difference could be, of course, 
it's impossible to know for sure because, again, this is a retrospective analysis, so there's lots of potential confounders and, and potential factors. But it, it is important that that difference exists, and, and it, this should actually serve as a, an opportunity for, to encourage people to want to do this data, this, uh, this type of research prospectively as we are intending to do, because that is the only way that you can have control over those factors that we didn't have in this case. For instance, theory would be that those patients that we ended up excluding here, because the quality of the images was worse, such that we couldn't make quantitative measurements, specifically the left integral fractional shortening, it's possible that those patients were sicker. It is possible also, and because they were sicker, it was more difficult to do procedures on them, to do any intervention on them. It's also possible that they were treated differently, that those patients, again, along the lines of self-fulfilling prophecy, were, were selecting the patients in whom we end up doing echoes to some extent. And so that difference, it's just impossible to know for sure exactly what, what explains that difference. But there was a significant difference between those two groups. And so what it really explains that, the only way will be to do this type of study in a prospective fashion. We're hoping, or we are at this point actually, doing a very similar study using the T data from the, the National or International T Collaborative Registry, essentially exactly the same study design. We're hoping to have that data published in the next few months. So essentially the equivalent of this study, but now with T data, which is, as you might know or not know, is, is just much better in terms of the quality. So then that will be step two. And then step three will be a prospective smaller study where we can hopefully control for s- some of these variables that we you know could not account for. It. Wow. That's exciting. Hey, Felipe. So based on the evidence that we have to date, I think I would love to know, and I'm sure our listeners would love to know, do you think that we're at a point where we should be treating, not that we're trying to prescribe practice people, but do you think that you should consider changing your management of cardiac arrest patients that have that difference in their cardiac activity on ultrasound? Like, do you think they, at this point, supported to warrant different treatments? This is a million dollar question. And and I always, as a cardiac arrest researcher, I try to be responsible with, you know, not getting too excited with the implications of this data and the work that we've done so far. In this case, I think what I'd say as a general prescription for everybody is that you should do what we consider the standard resuscitation care. And that involves ACLS if you're in a, in a hospital. And in that, as you know, the latest guidelines includes using echocardiography if you have the capability, if you have the expertise to do that. And so if you are doing that, if you're incorporating using echocardiography, then you will be doing this distinction. You will be separating patients. You will have this data. You can't kind of ignore the data, right? So then the question is, what do you do with it? And when I'm talking about data here, I'm talking about you will have patients in front of you that when you look with ultrasound, they have PEA, but they have different degrees of ventricular activity. And so unfortunately, at this point, there is no guidance as to what should you do more specifically with those patients with different flavors, if you will. But again, you can't ignore the data, right? You have it. It's in front of you. So you have to do something. So what I do and kind of recommend as a general practice is that we should follow what we have accepted and know provides the highest chances of gaining ROSC, and that is ensuring that you maintain high-quality CPR according to the metrics, that you minimize the chest compression interruptions specifically, and, and very clearly, if you're using ultrasound, you should make sure that that is not leading to longer CPR pauses. And then, if you're doing all that, if you're giving up an effort in every interval, as recommended, if you're doing high-quality CPR, if you're not interrupting CPR for longer than you know five seconds, and you're not gaining ROSC, I think it makes sense to try alternative 
alternative approaches. And that's where clinical practice and sort of judgment should prevail. We don't want to follow the definition of insanity, right? Try the same thing over and over and expect a different results. If you've done all that and you're not getting results at that point, a different result specifically, you're not getting ROSC, I think it makes sense to try sort of alternative protests, an alternative approach that makes sense, that is somewhat consistent with the, the data that we do have so far, is that an infusion of pressors makes sense in patients that have cardiac activity that is organized. In other words, instead of continuing doing boluses of one milligram of epinephrine, switching to an infusion. And then we can have a nuanced discussion about what is the best infusion at that point. I think for the scope of this discussion, let's say that an infusion of epinephrine, the same epi that you're giving instead of boluses, it makes sense to just give it as a as an infusion at that point. And I think that's as far as I'm going to go with that recommendation. Hopefully that kind of provides some guidance. But I think at this point, we don't really have enough data to really say how different populations of patients or subsets of patients, according to our findings in, in ultrasound, should be treated differently. I think we should be just responsible on that. I just love how it's kind of expanded past the, is this cardiac activity? Yes or no. My initial use of ultrasound in cardiac arrest was always to find those reversible causes, not really to help me guide my resuscitation. And now I think we have, we're starting to hit that next frontier where we're actually using the echo to guide what we're doing more so than just, is there reversible causes? Yes, no. Okay. Then just keep going with the same thing over and over. So I... I really look forward to the the future of this literature. The last thing I was going to add to that is also that remember that when you're doing an ultrasound or cardiac arrest, you're really just interrogating that heart at one given point in the resuscitation. We unfortunately don't know always the time frame or the, the length of time before the patient showed up to us. So the pre-hospital time, the downtime, we don't always have accurate times of, of those intervals. And so what that means is that we unfortunately don't know exactly at which point we're looking at that heart. And that is part of the problem. That is probably what explains some of the differences and findings that we have. So again, as a implication of that, what I keep in mind is that what we have now with the opportunity we have with ultrasound in contrast to the era where all we had was just an EKG and, and that was it. What we have now is an opportunity to actually look at the heart over time. So when you look at the heart with the initial image, that's your initial snapshot. But then you have an opportunity for the next several minutes of your resuscitation to look at that hard over time, just like we trend troponins in the emergency department or trend CBC on somebody who has had a GI bleed. We can do the same during the resuscitation in the emergency department. We get an echo and then we use that echo over time to see what that heart is doing over time. And that data should be should be relevant, should be should be helpful to give us an idea of whether things are working or not. If initially time zero, you had a heart that looked like COPA and then that heart is looking like it's cardiac stencil, well, you're clearly not moving in the right direction. If it's the opposite, then probably things are going in, in the right direction. And so that's kind of the other aspect that I think we should, the way we should start thinking about when we use echo in, in cardiac arrest. I would like to kind of switch gears just a little bit. We probably just have a few more minutes but I want to just hear, do you have a project that you're most proud of at this point in your career? Something that you kind of look back at and say, man, I'm so glad I did this. I'm I'm really jazzed about it. Ah, oh, that's tough. I'm obviously proud of all the work. Each one of these projects is a labor of love. You guys know because I know you've, you've published work, but for people that have not gone through the process of just getting some of stu the stuff published, uh, especially in you know, sort of high-tier journals like Resuscitation, it is gruesome. When you, fin you think you have a finished product and you submit your manuscript that you worked on for you know weeks or months and then you get you know reviewer two comments pages 
that are really good in some cases and some cases are not great but nevertheless you got to address them it is uh it is uh it's um soul crushing and so with that said i think if i had to pick the work that i've done prospectively so the work we did at university of pennsylvania with my mentor benabella and the group there evaluating tee specifically in the intra and post arrest setting that was particularly challenging specifically at the time because there were a lot of hurdles to overcome in terms of implementing tee and then making it an intervention during that challenging phase intra arrest and so we've gone i think a long way since then and replicating that the way we're doing it right now I think it's a lot easier but at the time especially as a junior faculty kind of pushing that forward with this being a still kind of emerging modality convincing people that it was the right thing to do and you know IRBs and and everything I'm more than proud I'd say I'm very happy that that was completed because I consider that an important sort of point in the in the history of how we're moving forward in this in the science here just as a a a little plug I I don't know if this is true Felipe you'll have to you have to uh, tell me I'm wrong but I was told actually when you were at the University of Pennsylvania doing this TEE research you were on call 24/7 and you would just jump on your bike and go to wherever there was a cardiac arrest to do the TEE yeah that's correct it's just that that's the only way you can get it done to be honest because if you look at the study we had 33 patients but I did TEEs do over you know almost a year so I only capture a fraction of the total number of arrests but the only way to get get images and get all the data we needed intra arrest was to be there when the rest came in. And so you either live in your recess bay, which I consider it did not fly, or live close to the hospital. So that's what I did. I lived close enough, somehow got a scooter and a good bicycle in my garage, and I would just ride whatever felt more appropriate given the weather and conditions. I remember a couple of days literally going on an ice, like five in the morning, trying to speed on an ice-covered street into the into the ED just to try and to get in time. But that's, that, you know, that's, that's I think, what it takes is, is the way it gets done. If you think about many other studies in medicine and, and how other things like, you know, a cath lab gets set up in, in some cases, like in many situations, it starts with a small group that needs to just take on it and make it happen. And it was not just myself who had a, a small team at Penn with other set of crazy collaborators who, who do the same. So yeah, that was true and um, continue to do a little bit of that. I'm not on call 24-7 anymore because I would have lost my wife had I continued to do that. <laughs> so you got to move on and, and graduate from that level of research. Well, the resuscitation community thanks you for your your uh, dedication. No, thank you guys for for this. This is great. Hopefully, we've encouraged and, and stimulated, motivated folks in the community, fellows. There's this, you know, as you can see here, a never-ending list of things that need to be done. Hopefully, there'll be more people encouraged to do research in cardiac arrest or do research in ultrasound. Happy to help in any way. And if I, if I may just plug in, the intimately related to this work is the current ongoing work of the Resuscitative T Collaborative. We have over 25 centers at this point actively fully onboarded and entering data. We are very close to getting to the first 300 cases and we're preparing the first uh, analysis. So we're collecting data prospectively on the use of TE in the emergency and and ICU settings across five indications, including in-hospital and out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. And so we're hoping to have the first publication this year regarding clinical impact and safety, which I think will be a very important step of uh, on the application of this modality. Well, Felipe, thank you so much for, for being our first guest. This was extremely uh, informative. I hope that everyone has enjoyed our first 
discussion and let us know your thoughts. I'm really excited about the future of this bonus section, and I cannot wait to keep engaging with our featured authors and the broader point of care community. Yeah, thanks, Zach, and thanks for spearheading this effort. Again, thanks to Felipe. Always a good time with him as a friend and as a supporter of the show. Keep up the good work, everybody out there who's on the front lines of research, both in resuscitation, cardiac arrest, and ultrasound. And you can always find out more at our website, ultrasoundjail.org. Don't forget to check that out. And until next time, we're going to be bringing you some more bonus cuts. We'll talk to you later. More. Pressure. More. Gel. More. Pressure. More. Gel. More. Ultrasound Gel Podcast.